The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to resume uh, the uh, message that we started a couple weeks ago. And uh, for tonight, we're just going to read verses uh, 12 and 13. This is the word of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So, Without having too much uh, or too long of a review, let me just point out a few things. And the first is is that verses 12 and 13, are, um, they form the application of the passage, right? Now, the, the, the passage needs to be broadly considered and then narrowly considered. Broadly considered, it goes from 8.1 through 10.11. And uh, in a sense, uh, verses 12 and 13 is a, a fitting application for the broader context. But really, the more immediate context, 10, 1 through 11, uh, where the list of sins of Israel in the past have been given, that really is the, the more pressing context. So when Paul says uh, in verse 12, he gives a warning. In verse 13, he gives a promise. And when he does that, what he's doing is he's driving home the application of these sins so that we would Notice, so that we would not crave evil things like they did, and we would not be idolaters, we would not act immorally, we would not grumble as they did. And so what 12 and 13 does as a way of application is 12 and 13 come to us as both warning and promise. And we talked a couple weeks ago about the way warnings and promises work together in conjunction with each other. And um, and, and I want to say that if, if you can get a grasp on the way that warnings and promises work together, that actually will help you understand a lot of challenging passages, right? So the warnings are designed to keep us from presumption. The warnings are designed to keep us from spiritual laziness. The warnings are designed to keep us running the race, The promises are designed to keep us from despair, to keep us from unbelief, right? And so you can think of the warnings and the promises as two guardrails that keep us from falling off either side of the road into the ditch. I had a good friend just uh, called me the other night, and and, uh, this this guy has been a Christian for well over a, a decade now, and just fruitful, faithful ministry. And he said, I'm afraid I'm the guy in Hebrews 6. And you ever, you ever felt like that? You read a passage in Scripture and you're just like, Lord, is this me? And am I for real? And, um, you know, I mean, I remember vividly being 13, 14 years old reading Hebrews 6 in the Living Bible thinking for sure I was lost and damned and going to hell and there was nothing anybody could do about it. So I just kept reading and uh, figure what else you're supposed to do. And I, that night, I remember, I read, all the way, I read all the way through Hebrews, all the way through Revelation. Revelation didn't bring me a whole lot of comfort. But anyway, um, the warnings and the promises work together. And so I was able to, to say, listen, the, the, the big question is not, hey, is this describing you because you're not for real? This is an exhortation for you to keep running and not to give up, right? And so that's the way the warnings and the promises work together. And so the warning, of course, is uh, following the list of sins, 10, 5 through 11, and it warns them. So verse 12, in a sense, warns them that they dare not fall. And then verse 13 gives them a promise that assures them that they need not fall, right? Sometimes you can read the warnings and just think, well, that's me. That's what I'm going to do. And the promises actually come to us 
in a way to assure us that those warning passages need not be us. And so the promise then is given in verse 13, and it's broken in just a few parts. First of all, no uncommon trial. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And uh, I argued a couple weeks ago that what Paul has in view here is, uh, remember the word trial is also the same word for temptation. In, in, in the Greek text, perosmos, there, there's, there's not like some word for trial and then some word for temptation. It's the same word. It's the context of the word that helps us see what's in view. And um, I'm suggesting that in light of the larger context, Paul uh, may well be implying the idea of temptation in the sense of the sins that have been listed and more, of course, but then also the idea of, of, of the trial that comes when you're trying to live faithfully. And uh, I was glad to find one old commentator, Findley, not Finney, but Findley, who said, both the allurements to idolatry and the persecution which its abandonment entails is in view. So in other words, this common temptation, common trial is both the allurement to idolatry, but then also the persecution that comes when we abandon idolatry. Right, so both of those things. And um, except that which is common to man. So Thistleton says, no temptation is fastened upon you except what is part and parcel of being human. All right. So then there's the no uncommon temptation or trial, but then there's the promise. And the promise is made up of three parts. Very quickly, the foundation, but God is faithful. Right? And we, we spent a lot of time two weeks ago, talking about what that means for God to be faithful. Uh, you, you know, there are, there are certain truths, there are certain things in the Christian life that, that we latch onto because we realize that those certain truths are a lifeline to us. In fact, not just a lifeline, those certain truths are our life. And so the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, and the faithfulness of God. I would, I would argue that you can't live a, a healthy Christian life with ballast in your soul unless you are grounded in those truths about God. And God's faithfulness in this passage is demonstrated in two ways. First, his faithfulness in, in both what he limits and his faithfulness in what he provides. So there is God's faithfulness in limitation. And again, I, I, this, I, I, think, I think that this was a great encouragement to some of you a couple weeks ago. At least you told me it was. The idea here in God's faithfulness, who will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you are able So whether it is temptation or whether it is trial, whatever comes into our life in the faithfulness of God, God has limited that. Now you may say, well, it doesn't feel like he's limited anything. But the fact is, is that it could always be more, right? The temptations could always be more intense. The trials could always be worse, could always be heavier. God knows in his perfect sovereignty and his absolute faithfulness to us exactly what we need. He remembers that we're weak. He knows our individual personal weaknesses. And so God sovereignly limits what comes into our lives because he is faithful. So nobody can ever, ever say, well, that one was just too strong for me. Nobody can ever say, that temptation, I had no choice but to give in because it was too strong. That is an excuse that is a lie. Nobody can ever say, that trial was so heavy, that burden was so overwhelming that I had, 
I had no choice but to, uh, but to give up on God. Nobody can ever say that. God in his faithfulness limits what comes to us, and then God in his faithfulness makes provision. But with the temptation also shall make the way of escape. We focused quite a bit of time on the fact that escape here is not like escapism, right? It's not some sort of, um, some sort of um, magical intervention where all of a sudden you go, wow, the temptation's gone, I can't believe it, okay? Now, I'm not saying that that can't happen. I'm just saying that doesn't usually happen, right? When temptation comes... That means there's, there, there's a battle to be fought, right? And that battle is not God giving us an escape hatch where all of a sudden we can find ourselves in a temptation-free zone. doesn't work that way. It's the same thing with, with, with trials. And so what does he mean that with the trial, with the temptation, he will provide also a way of escape well, the, the answer to that is seen in the result, so that you're able to endure. Okay. That's the way of escape, is endurance. You're like, well, I'd prefer something a little more dramatic. I mean, endurance is, is like grinding it out at times, right? Endurance under a trial or endurance in the face of temptation, that sometimes just is like a grind. And we want something that is, uh, let's just say, more rapturous. And yet the way of escape is endurance, and endurance is in resisting. So in order to escape... You need to endure, and in order to endure, you have to resist. So we said, I thought this was fairly memorable, the way out is to bear up, not to give in, right? The way out is to bear up, not to give in. So we endure the temptation, we resist it. How do we resist it? We resist it by fleeing, right? Verse 14, flee idolatry. 6, uh, is it six eighteen? flee immorality. What do you do? You stand firm by running, right? That's what you do. And so the, uh, the promise comes to us, and just by way of summary, Paul's not giving comfort to those who think they stand. He's assuring those who know what it is to be overtaken. Okay, and um, Paul is really not in uh, in the business of of bringing comfort to the proud Corinthians. Okay. More often than not, um, people that are proud need to be humbled, and humbling doesn't typically come through comforting promises, but through firm warnings. That's the way God works, because he's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so Paul's not giving comfort to those who think they stand. He's actually assuring those who know what it is to be overtaken in, uh, in a trial or a temptation. And so the temptations and the trials that we encounter, really, we take comfort. They're no different than anybody else. Okay? No different than anybody else. And one of the things in our pride is that sometimes we think that our trials are unique or our temptations are unique, and it's just not true. I mean, I think I mentioned this, but I mean, I've had people tell me as I've been trying to counsel them from God's Word that there is no way that I can understand what they're going through because I've not faced that exact temptation. It's just not true. It just isn't. We all face the temptations and the trials that are common to simply being human. All right? Now, if we're determined to be faithful, 
If we're determined to resist and endure, God will open up the way of escape, I think, by giving us the strength that we need in order to resist the temptation, right? Now, that brings us to the application, which we, which we started on just a little bit. And uh, this, is, this is good because this kind of converges with Sunday school because um, you have notes on the back. There you see it. Okay. Um, we've been talking about John Owen, and John Owen's going to help us on temptation here. So, um, uh, seven or eight points on trial and temptation. So first, trials may come upon us, and these come upon us by the sovereign purpose of God to test our faith, all right? The Bible is absolutely clear about this, that if you are a Christian, your faith is going to be tested, and when your faith is tested, that test comes to us by the sovereign hand of God. And so on the one hand, James 1, 2 to 4, we're to consider it all bummerness, no, all joy, my brethren, uh, if by chance on rare occasion you may, no, that's not how it goes either. So consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter variegated, okay, same, by the way, same word that's used of Joseph's coat, okay, multicolored trials, okay, multicolored trials. So why in the world are you supposed to consider it all joy? That sounds like insanity. Well, the reality is, is the only way you can consider it joy is by knowing, right? So consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when trials come to us, there is an immediate sense where we have to recognize God is doing something in me. He wants to grow me. He wants to to test the metal of my faith, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, and let endurance have its perfect work in you. Right? So, so God is growing us. God is, is uh, drawing out through, through tests what is in us. So therefore, we should not despise tests. Owen, I think I read this to you. This is... Owen says, Grace and corruption lie deep in the heart. Okay, so, so both things, grace and corruption, lie deep in the heart, and man is often deceived in his evaluations of it. God comes to us with a gauge that can go right to the bottom. His instruments of trial dig right into the depths and innermost parts of the soul. This allows man to see clearly what is truly in him and what type of metal is in his constitution. So that's, that's what trials are for. That's what they are all about. In fact, the testing of our faith produces growth and purity and maturing of our faith so that trials actually are a demonstration of God's love to us. It's hard to believe sometimes. But trials... And of course, suffering falls under that, are a demonstration of God's love to us. One of the things that God may be drawing out is whether or not we really believe that. Whether or not we can say with the psalmist, it was good for me that I was afflicted. How in the world do you say that? It was good for me that I was afflicted. In, in, in our vocabulary, affliction and good don't go together. It was good for me that I was afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. And so you say, well, 
the, the trials, the suffering, the things that I, the afflictions that I go through in this life, they are so burdensome. They are so overwhelming. They are, they are so heavy. I can't believe that a God who loves me would actually not just allow, but actually bring those things into my life. And, and I just want to tell you, read your Bible better. Read your Bible better. You think you have it rough. Think about Job. Did Job know what it was to go through trials? The answer is, of course he did. Did Job do it perfectly? And the answer is, no. First two chapters are great, but you get to chapter 3 and it's all downhill from there. Job struggles with things. God's goodness to him. Trials sometimes simply bring to the surface whether or, whether or not we are confident that God really does love us. And so, God is, 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 is drawing out for us, to, for us to see what's in there. So, some of you are going through really challenging times. Big trials, things that you would not volunteer to go through. Nobody actually signs up. It's not like there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer of heaven and you go, oh, yeah, that, that one looks pretty good. I think I'll do that one. It doesn't work that way. God sovereignly brings into our lives what he knows that we need. And so when those trials come, do you know what you can do? You can say, first of all, what is coming upon me? is common. Okay? I'm not a special case. Okay? I go to my family doctor, and he's very wonderful and very helpful, but he always looks at me and reads whatever and shakes his head and then says, you're a special case. And I look at him and I say, well, Ariel knows that. And he says, well, after 30 years of marriage, she should know that. Right, And then I say, but I'm not a special case. Sometimes we get these trials and temptations. We think we're just a special case. No, I go to 1 Corinthians 10.13. I say, this is, this is common to man, and my God is faithful. Right? That's what I'm preaching to myself from 1 Corinthians 10.13. God is faithful, and he's faithful to me. And so then what am I doing? I'm preaching to myself that what has come upon me, we're going to see this when we get to Genesis 50, 20 in, in a couple of weeks. Um, I realize God intends it for good. Pure and simple, God intends it for good. Let me just say, no matter what it is, I can say Genesis 50, 20 is absolutely true regardless of what the trial is. God intends it for good. And in fact, our view of providence is that there's nothing that comes into my life that does not first pass through the hand of my loving, wise, good, sovereign, faithful father. And so if it comes to me, then, then I say, okay, God is in his faithfulness, is, is actually giving me just what I need he knows how much I can bear. What he, he knows how much faith I have. And now he's going to give me the grace to endure it. Arm yourself with 1 Corinthians 10.13. Arm yourself with a hymnal. Bible first, then the hymnal. So we sing this regularly. And so I hope, I hope you listen to the words we sing, because that's why we sing. O oh, Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain, all evil overruling as none but conqueror could, your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. Second, temptation comes when Satan tempts us to sin against God and act in unbelief. 
So trial comes from the hand of God as a test. Now, I think that sometimes that which is a trial can also be used by Satan as a temptation. God's intention, of course, is to grow me, mature me, and so forth. Satan's goal is always the same. It's to destroy and undermine my faith. That's, that's What Satan wants to do in the life of a believer is, is to pry you away from trusting Christ. Okay? He's not looking to try to possess you. He's not looking to, um, to do something that is uh, supernatural, spectacular, you know, voodoo type thing. Just simply putting you in the sieve and separating you from your faith is his goal. And temptation is one of the primary weapons that he uses. And so, so temptation comes when Satan tempts us to sin against God and to act in unbelief. And so, of course, this is rooted in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of man. Remember, remember what happens. What does Satan do? Satan immediately calls into question the goodness of God and the veracity, the truthfulness of God's word. It's immediately what Satan does. Gives a, gives a, a not so subtle innuendo to Eve that if God was really good, he would have given you no prohibition. And then, of course, bringing, a, bringing doubt and suspicion upon the word of God. Uh, indeed, has God said? And then all of a sudden, the, the temptation from the serpent is that now what you need to do is you need to do the very thing that God told you not to do. That's temptation. God says, by the way, don't, don't ever miss the bounty of Genesis 2. Every single tree in the garden was given to them. God was not stingy. God was abounding in generosity. There was just one simple tree that they could not eat from. Just one. It's a probation tree. And Satan comes along and he says, do you really mean to say that God told you not to eat from that one? You know why? Because he's holding out on you. And sometimes that's exactly what Satan does, is he makes it look like God's commands and prohibitions are really nothing more than a reflection on God holding out on us. God somehow trying to, uh, trying to um, shortchange me on the happiness that I really do deserve. And so temptation comes when Satan comes and actually tempts me to sin in a way against God that is an act of unbelief. Think of our Lord Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Remember that Satan, in the words of Richard Baxter, is a nimbler disputant, a more nimble disputer than you. He knows the Bible better than you. (laughs) Right? Yea, has God said, okay, do this then. If you are the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. And of course, Jesus replies each time with the scriptures. But what was, what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to get us to act in unbelief. This is, this is what, this is what our daily life is made up of. Are these, are these temptations that are set in front of us and they're set in front of us in such a way that, that, that at that given moment when that temptation presents itself to us, there is now in front of me either an act of faith or an act of unbelief. Those are, this, those are the only two options in the face of temptation. Faith in God's 
threats or God's promises, which then leads me to resist the temptation and to obey God, or unbelief, that is, not believing what God has said, but instead believing the lie of the temptation. So every single temptation that we face is a fight of faith. Who will we believe? What will we believe? Wherein do we believe our happiness comes? Wherein do we think there is joy? And Satan is a master. And he sets it before us. It's like, this is going to be fun. And it's always a lie. Always. Nobody, nobody has ever given in to temptation and then experienced the the guilt of conscience and the misery and then turn around and go, that was totally worth it. Nobody says that. What you say is if I could rewind the clock, I'd do it differently. And so Satan is active, seeking to get us to, to, uh, to be tempted. Number three, temptation comes, and listen to this carefully, temptation comes when we assist Satan by our own sinfulness. Okay? When we assist Satan. Now, I don't think very many of us would actually say, oh yeah, I, I help the devil out all the time. But that is exactly what we're saying, is temptation comes when we assist Satan by our own sinfulness. Um, Herman Vitzius, who is an um, old theologian, says, an internal temptation springs from that wickedness and corruption of our nature, which every one of us, alas, has too frequently experienced which the Old Testament calls the evil imagination and which is described in the pages of the New Testament as the sin that dwelleth in us, the flesh or lust, the law of sin, which is in our members. Then he says, by its disorderly motions, it sometimes impels us strongly towards what is evil, wars against the law of our mind. And, and unless it were wisely and powerfully resisted, it would lead us captives to the law of sin. It would lead us astray and it would end in death. No temptation certainly is more dangerous than that which springs from this internal source. It scarcely, if ever, fails to produce some bad consequence. The Apostle James says this, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God never solicits people to do evil. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Owen says this, he says, Satan has in us an agreeable party within our very own breasts for most of his ends. Right in here, Satan often finds an agreeable party. Owen goes on and describes temptation like this, anything that for any reason exerts a force or an influence to seduce and draw the mind and heart of man from the obedience which God requires of him to any kind of sin. So temptation comes when we assist Satan by the lusts that are within our own heart. Now, let me just say quickly that Satan could drop dead today and we would still have trouble, all right? In fact, I have a theory, and that is 
if Satan were to drop dead today, none of us would probably even know. Because the lusts and the corruptions within are enough to sink us every day. Don't ever, don't ever underestimate the power of remaining corruption. Don't ever think that you've become so holy that you can't sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. All right? Because that day, you will be holy enough one day not to sing that, but that's when you're dead and in heaven. All right? Okay, number four, we should be proactive when it comes to temptation. Now, the reason I say this is because I'm, I'm convinced that most of the time we are not on alert to the temptations around us. Okay? In fact, I can't give you a, a, like a scientific number or statistic, but I would be willing to say, so just like for myself, I would be willing to say that, oh, let's say maybe 90% of the temptations that I face today, I probably wasn't even aware that they were temptations. We can get kind of accustomed to the snares around us, right? So we have to be more proactive when it comes to temptation. And so uh, what does Jesus teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or better, the evil one. Now, by the way, when Jesus teaches us to pray that way, he's not saying, you better pray because God's going to lead you right into temptation. You have to take this with James 1, 13 and 14. And to say, lead me not into temptation is you are praying that God would preserve you and keep you from temptation. Okay? That's, what the, that's what the petition is. You're actually praying, Lord, actually help me to, um, to avoid temptation today. Hey, there's a novel thought. Avoid temptation. I don't know why this is so hard for us. Avoid temptation. One of the reasons it's so hard is because we sort of have this minimalist view of obedience. We have this idea that that. God has these lines that are drawn, and my job is to find out how close I can get to the line without going over. That's a really bad idea. In fact, if a person lives that way, they'll be living on the other side of the line more times than not. So I need to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil today. Guard me right? Guard my paths. I, I want to avoid temptation. Help me to avoid temptation. Preserve me from temptation. Not just preserve me from sin. Preserve me from temptation. Okay? Um, then Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you enter not into Temptation. There's a simple command, right? Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. And yet, so often what ends up happening is we we don't pray. I'm not going to take a poll, but I wonder how many of us actually prayed, Lord, help me to be watchful today. Help me to be watchful and help me not enter into temptation. I'll just tell you, I didn't pray that way this morning. It's just, a lot of times, just not on our minds, right? And yet Jesus says, here, I'm going to give you a pattern for prayer. I'm going to give you six petitions, and one of them has to do with temptation and the evil one. One of the six, right? By the way, I mentioned Thomas Watson, uh, his, uh, his treatment of the Lord's Prayer, which uh, he's dealing with the shorter catechism and the Lord's Prayer. 
absolute pure gold. That little section that I gave you Sunday, how do we know when we've forgiven somebody? That was from Thomas Watson. His stuff on lead us not into temptation, absolute pure gold. So Thomas Watson, by the way, is one of the easiest of the Puritans to read. All right. Okay, number five. Entering temptation occurs when, one, God permits Satan to lay a snare before us. Now, if Satan's going to lay a snare before me, he has to get permission from God. Luke 22, 31, 32, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. When you return, go and strengthen your brothers. So sometimes temptation happens when God permits Satan to lay a snare for us. Now, again, um, you have to think about these things, right? So there there is an enemy of your soul that hates God, that despises Christ, and despises you, and wants you to live in such a way that you bring shame and disgrace on the one who has redeemed you and that he pry you away from a confidence in Christ in such a way that you're led into either um, arrogant self-righteousness or miserable, dismal uh, despair. He doesn't care, right? He doesn't care if you're the man in the iron cage in, in Interpreter's House in Pilgrim's Progress or uh, he doesn't care if you're a Pharisee. As long as he can separate you from a confidence and a faithfulness in walking with Christ, that's all he cares about. And so these snares are all around us, and, and so God can permit Satan to lay a snare, but we enter into temptation also when our lusts and desires meet opportunity. So we're criminals at heart. Motive and opportunity. And so being proactive for both of these is absolutely crucial. We'll talk about more how to pray about that in a second. Number six, entering temptation can come through long solicitations. So what I mean by this is we may enter into a time of temptation and that temptation may be actually an extended period of the temptation soliciting us to do evil. So think about Joseph, for instance, Psalm, or Genesis 37, 10 and 11. So um, what does it say about Potiphar's wife? Every day, okay, every day she says to Joseph, come and lie with me. Every day. Now, here's the the interesting thing about this kind of temptation is that Joseph didn't have a a whole lot of control over this temptation. This temptation was not actually emerging internally from his own uh, corruption. This temptation was being laid in front of him by Satan, also known as Potiphar's wife, and she was after him every single day. Now, we know that he tries to avoid it, but we also know that she was crafty, Day after day, what is she seeking to do? She's seeking to wear him down. Sometimes that's exactly what's going on with temptation, is that there are these long solicitations. It's dangerous, right? Owen makes the comment about the the peculiar danger that can happen here, and... um, Let me just read this section real quickly from Owen. He says, temptation can also darken the mind by a sad entangling of the affections. When the affections are engaged, they have a strong influence in blinding the mind and darkening the understanding. If any have not considered this before, you need only to open your eyes to what is around you. You'll see it quickly. 
The engagement of the affections clouds the mind and darkens it. Show me a man engaged in hope, love, and fear in connection with temptation, and I shall quickly show you how he is darkened and blinded. He then says a little later, he says, affections set at liberty by temptation. Affections set at liberty by temptation will run on in madness. Previous hatred of sin, fear of the Lord, sense of love, and felt presence of Christ crucified all depart and leave the heart to leave the heart a prey to its enemies. And so what Owen is saying, and, and, and not just young people, but young people in particular need to listen to this. When there are these long solicitations to evil, to sin, if we are not figuring out how to flee it, run from it, extract ourselves from it, if we're constantly exposed to the temptation over and over, day after day, what Owen is saying is that there comes a point where the affections start to get entangled. You start to look at the temptation not in terms of it being a solicitation to evil. You start to look at the temptation as something that may be offering you something. And, and Owen says once the, once the affections get entangled in the temptation, the mind is completely darkened. Okay? And I want to give you the most, the, the clearest example that you see over and over and over and over again. So here's a young woman or a young man brought up in a Christian home, and they have it drummed into them, you don't marry an unbeliever, okay? Scripture is absolutely clear, don't marry an unbeliever. In fact, because you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever, don't date unbelievers, Because if you date an unbeliever, your heart may get entangled, and if your heart gets entangled, then you stop thinking. And once you stop thinking, then you're willing to do things that you weren't able to do before. And that young woman or that young man grows up, and they have this conviction, and and uh, and and they've made their commitments, and they're going to be just as strong as can be until until that until that. Uh, emissary of Satan is in the same algebra class in college. And then he starts talking. And his speech is smooth as butter. And all of a sudden, this young lady, and you can reverse it, I'm not being prejudiced. This young lady then starts to have this temptation of, so the guy says, hey, you want to go out sometime? And all of a sudden, that young woman that, that outside of that situation would have said, you know what, if I was ever faced with that, I'd say absolutely not. I don't date unbelievers. Now all of a sudden, it's like, well, I don't want to be rude. Maybe just once, and then the heart is entangled. And once the heart is entangled, we become stupid. Young people, you become stupid. I'm going to hunt you down. And tell you, quit being stupid. You know better. But I love her. Guess guess what's talking there? A heart that has become entangled with the temptation. Mind is darkened. It happens all the time. Some middle-aged guy who starts to think, you know what? I'm still pretty good looking after all these years. I probably deserve a little bit more in, in this life than what I'm getting. And all of a sudden, that person in the office 
that he's had so many conversations with, now he starts having conversations about how terrible his marriage is. You don't think this happens? This happens all the time. And then that woman, who's nothing other, in the language of the Proverbs, than a seductress, sees a perfect opportunity for this really vulnerable, transparent, not a man. And they end up in bed together. Now how that happens? The mind gets darkened because the affections get entangled because there's not been the resistance to the temptation. There's been, there's been these little compromises here and there, and these little compromises entangle the heart. And once the heart is entangled, you, you've already jumped off the building. When you're passing the fourth floor, you, you don't really have the opportunity at that point to say, you know what, I think I should stop now. There's only one outcome for that, and it's splat. Number seven, this isn't number seven in your notes, but you'll see it. Entering temptation can come upon us with immediacy. So you don't just have the long solicitations, but here's, here's, here's it where the, the person's not looking for anything. They're not like devising evil on their bed. They're not trying to strategize on how I can be really an evil person. There is just a sense where, where Satan knows the weaknesses and these temptations are like stepping on a landmine. And all of a sudden you realize that you lift your foot, you're going to blow up. And they come upon you suddenly. Oh, and I won't take time to, to read it. Owen talks about the, the violence that these temptations come upon us. And they come upon us so violently that we're in the middle of them, we know exactly what they are. If you're determined at the beginning to fight... 1 Corinthians 10.13 is your hope and stay. If you have stuff brewing in your heart and that stuff meets the opportunity of an immediate temptation, watch out. You don't have much hope. Next, we should fear temptation because of our own weakness, but we can face temptation with God's promises. You know, as a pastor, you hear all kinds of just horror stories that break your heart of guys in ministry who fall. And the absolute worst response is to say, oh, I always knew there was something wrong with that guy. Absolute worst response. Best response? Fear. Fear. Because at the end of the day, no temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. And if that guy fell, I know I can too. You have to understand, that should put the fear of God into us. Never a sense of, oh, you know, I always knew there was something a little off with that guy or a little off with that person. The, the, the reality is, is, man, that happened to him. That could happen to me. God help me. God save me. God preserve me. God keep me. And so we should, we should fear temptation because of our own weakness and our only confidence, our only confidence is in God's promises. That's the only thing that gives me any hope is that, the, is that God who promised is faithful. And so 
Do I fear because of my own weakness? And the answer is yes. Do I actually just become a fatalist and think, well, that's the way that I'm going to go. That's the way everybody else goes. And the answer is no. God's faithful. I'm going to bank my hope on his promises and I'm going to take to heart his threats. And not for one single solitary minute am I going to think that somehow I am an exception. A special case. So we should be proactive in prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. Look, turn over to, um, to Psalm 19. We're almost, almost done here. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a famous psalm, but verse 12 is not nearly as famous as 1 through 11. David says, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, and then I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Now, there's, there's, actually, there's actually two things at work here. There's what we could call secret sins, okay? and then presumptuous sins. Okay? Everybody see that? Now, by the way, the Puritan Obadiah Sedgwick wrote an entire book on this text called The Anatomy of Secret Sins. Totally worth reading. But here is the prayer. So, first of all, who can discern his errors? You, You know what I take that petition to mean? Is that there's stuff inside of me that I don't even see. Is there any way to discern, for me, to discern the depth of the sin that's in my heart? And the answer is no. There's no way for me to know that. Jeremiah 17, 9 corroborates that. Okay? And I've said it before, and I'll say it until I'm an old man that's drooling and repeating myself, and that is, we are far worse than we think. And every once in a while... God kind of opens up his fingers a little bit. And we see that daylight. And he does it to show us what we are. So there's there's just a lot of really nice people in this room. But we're all absolutely miserable sinners who are far worse than we think we are. Who can discern his errors? Notice the next line. Acquit me. New American Standard says of hidden faults. Secret sins. Now, in the text... Secret sins or hidden faults are not hidden because I'm hiding them. They're hidden because I don't recognize them. They are... (laughs) Kidner says something like, it's not that they're too small to see, but they're too characteristic to register. Think about that. Hidden sins are not hidden because I'm on some great conspiracy to make sure I hide all my sins. And uh, these hidden sins are not hidden because they're too small. They are actually just too characteristic for me to even register. Wow. There are ways about us and things about us that we don't even see. Acquit me of the stuff that doesn't even register with me. 
Ask the Lord, Lord, what doesn't register with me? What is so characteristic that it doesn't even come up on my radar anymore? Brave enough to pray that? Because I, I think I can almost promise that if we prayed that, God would show us. And I don't think any of us here would like what we see. Then, he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. So you've got the secret stuff that's secret because it doesn't register because it's so characteristic. But then over here, you've got the presumptuous stuff. That's the stuff that you know it's sin. Very clearly, you know it's sin. And you still go that way anyway. David says, God, hold me back. Hold me back. Grab hold of whatever you need to grab hold of. You ever, you, ever, you ever pray, God, save me from myself. That's what this prayer is. Keep me back. Hold me back, please. Restrain me. Restrain me from presumptuous sin. Spurgeon, can't beat Spurgeon. Presumptuous sins are particularly dangerous. All sins are great sins, but yet some sins are greater than others. Every sin has in it the venom of rebellion. But there are some sins which have in them a greater development of the essential mischief of rebellion. And which wear upon their faces more of the brazen pride which defies the Most High. It is wrong to suppose that because all sins will condemn us, that therefore one sin is not greater than another. The presumptuous sins of our text are the chief and worst of all. So praying like this, who can discern their errors? Lord, test my heart. Show me the stuff that doesn't register anymore. And please, for your name's sake, hold me back. Save me from myself. Restrain me. Put put the bit in my mouth and pull back hard on the reins. Save me from myself. And so we look to God in those times of temptation. We claim his promises. We fight the good fight. There's not a single one of us here that's strong enough to just walk through life impervious to the dangers of the temptations all around us. And so we need to pray. We need to pray. Some of you young people, you need to start learning what it is to pray that God would not lead you into temptation but deliver you from evil. There's enough evil in this world and there's enough evil in your own heart to sink you forever. Pray that God would hold you back. And then don't give up if it seems that God does not answer right away. Don't think... The temptation, boom, there it is. Oh, Lord, deliver me from evil. Still there. Lord, deliver me. This isn't some incantation. Don't give up if God does not deliver you right away. Because what God may be doing is testing your mettle, giving you enough grace to resist and endure, to see who you really love and who you really believe. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for all of our presumptuous sins and we pray that you would acquit us of all of our hidden sins and we pray that you would put it on our hearts on a daily basis 
to be watchful and to pray that we would not enter into temptation. Father, remind us that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Give us grace, Lord. Father, we don't want to disgrace you. We don't want to dishonor you. We don't want to bring reproach to the name of Christ. And so we pray that you would help us. Remind us that you're faithful. Walk with us and help us. Be our shield and our defender. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.